0: Welcome to the Well Season Librarian Podcast. This is Season 9, Episode 21. I'm your host, Dean Jones. I'm very happy to be able to let you listen to my conversation with Marissa Rothkoff-Bates. She is a podcaster of The Secret Life of Cookies, and she's a writer that you've seen her work if you've been on television with Nickelodeon, Oxygen Network. Um, she wrote for one of my favorite magazines ever, a Spy Magazine, back in the 80s. And She's been very influential to American culture, and it was delicious to get to talk to her. She was so witty and so fun to talk to. Um, Just digressing um, about how dogs' voices would sound and about how dogs' personalities are with her. We edited that out later, but it was just so fun to get to talk to her. I think I talked to her for a good half hour after the uh, interview was over with, and it was just a a direct pleasure to do so, so. I really hope that you enjoy this conversation, but I know you will because it was just so fun. She's such a pleasure to talk to and so charming. Um, She's got a wonderful podcast, The Secret Life of Cookies. This isn't just a simple cooking podcast. She gets to talk to people who are in government and different walks of life, um, other cooking writers, but she also gets to bake with them making cookies or something else. And it's kind of great because she gets to ask them a lot of very personal questions. And it's just a great podcast. Um, you know, I, we have links to that in the bio. She also has a wonderful sub stack where she uh, puts her writing out. She's just great. And I think you're going to like this, so I'm not going to dither anymore. I'm going to take you right to my conversation with podcaster, writer, Marissa Rothkopf Bates. Welcome to the well-seasoned librarian podcast. I'm your host Dean Jones today. I'm very honored to be talking with writer Marissa Rothkoff-Bates, who writes about food for the New York Times, Food52, New Jersey Monthly, Publishers Weekly, among others. For Newsweek, she had wrote the Gadget Less column where she reviewed inventive kitchen technologies. In addition to this, Marissa was a wonderful Substack newsletter where she shares magnificent recipes with her readers. She also has a podcast, The Secret Life of Cookies, where she talks to a variety of guests. Marissa, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here.
0: Can you tell our audience where you grew up and what your early life was before you went to school?
1: Jersey. Jersey in the house, man. No place better. (laughs) No place better for food in the entire world. And I will say that with great pride. Um, I grew up in New Jersey. Um, I mean, I was born in New York City, so don't think I don't have the street cred, okay? Um, But (laughs) there is... I grew up in New Jersey. I'm a nice suburban girl. That's all, you know, um, I grew up in a family that, um, obsessively talked about food. We thought about every meal before, while we were eating one meal, we were thinking about the next meal. Um, it's just who we are. And, uh, and to this day, my brothers and I carry on that tradition.
0: At what point in your life did you say you know what i'm a writer when did that come to you
1: Uh, it it was it was not some great blazing like no renaissance painters are going to be painting like my vision in the forest with like you know the pen between the stags antlers or anything (laughs) like that that did not happen to me Uh, it was just like oh you grew up in our family well then you write because you know, like other, you know, oh, we're tailors, oh, we're cobblers, oh, well, if you can sort of scramble together a sentence, then you're a writer, good. Um, my mother was a, a writer and copy editor and editor um, and worked from home. When I was growing up, she worked from home. She kind of, um, so I, I watched her doing that all day long. <clears throat> my father was um, a scientist and professor, but had to write a lot, so he was always writing. And when he wasn't doing writing about science, you know, and experiments and things. <laughs> um, he was coming up, he was writing poetry and writing novels. And it's just, you know, so I thought, well, I, I guess I can do this. So I'm, I feel very lucky to have grown up in that atmosphere.
0: There was one thing in your bio that jumped out at me because I was such a fan of it. Uh, you were, you wrote for Spy magazine, which I really loved, and I I think I still have copies of it, and I really miss it. What was it like working with the spy team in those formulative days in the 90s?
1: Oh, it's funny. Um, (laughs) It was actually in the 80s. Um, Oh, that's right.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true.
1: It was started in the 80s, uh, and I say that because um, it only makes me sound older. No, uh, I say it because (laughs) I was a sophomore in college and my mother sent me this magazine She's like look at this is so great you have to see this magazine. Um, And I was like oh my god this is so funny and I was like I know I should ask for an internship there, and I wrote them a letter um, in one of those moments where I actually had my act together and was feeling all sort of funky and sparky and. Wrote a letter and said, uh, I think you need a, an intern and it should be me. And um, gosh, or it wasn't that obnoxious, believe me. Um, and they called me in and they're like, uh, okay, sh- uh, sure. <laughs> what do you want to do? And it was very, it was just to, happening to be at, in the right place at the right time. And I remember um, George Kalajarakis, who was the guy who interviewed me, who went on to like, you know, be like, you know, the editor of the opinion page in the New York Times or um, was like, I didn't really know about having interns or anything like that. So when you wrote the letter, I was just like, uh, sure, sure, whatever, you know, (laughs) Um, and it kind of worked out wonderfully. You know, it was an incredible team, Um, Graydon Carter and Kurt Anderson, uh, Graydon, uh, who went on to do Vanity Fair, Kurt, who went on to do all sorts of things, including Studio 360 and write tremendously wonderful novels um it it, you couldn't have asked for a more incredible team of people and we were in the ninth floor of the puck building um um, houston street and we didn't like we didn't have air conditioning and we were on the ninth floor of this place so one of our jobs in the summer in new york um, although Graydon and Kurt did have air conditioning, I want to be very clear about that, but <laughs> were the kind of, were the kind of bosses who would open their door and let some of the air conditioning come through. So you got to oh. give them points. point. They were good people. Um, but one of our jobs, me and, um, one of my other interns, there were two other interns with me at the time. There was David Camp, um, who is a writer for places like Vanity Fair and has written uh, one of the kind of most important, what a really important food book called the United States of Arugula. And Tylee Levis, who now runs an incredible inn um, in Vermont called the Wilburton Inn, um, our jobs were things like, "Go get us some ice pop." <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, because it was so hot, um and uh, we did that, but we would also got to do great like reporting on stuff. It was really a, a truly wonderful um, it, it event, and uh, I mean ability, I mean, Place to be really. It was a truly wonderful place to be. And Graydon and Kurt would sneak us into the Time Warner Building Library and me and David camp so that we could use their research files wow. um, Which made <laughs> us feel, which made us feel very special. Um, and I went to work for them after college too. I did uh, graduate work and then um, like over Christmas break when I was sort of scratching my head and wondering just what kind of intellect, deep, profound intellectual pursuit I was going to take on next. They're like, hey, do you want to come um, research a book we're working on about um, the Spy 100, which is all about the world's most terrible and wonderful people, places, and things. And Donald Trump was always at the top of that list, I just want to point out, as in a horrible. And Spy Magazine was the first place to go. That man. And that's where we... um, crowned him um, the short fingered Bulgarian.
0: <laughs> I was going to mention that because um, that made me laugh so hard when I read that. The other mm-hmm. day and I'd forgotten mm-hmm. that you guys had wonderful uh, skewering nicknames for some celebrities. Do you remember any others uh, off the top of your head?
1: No, not off the top of my head. Okay. I don't. sorry. It was just him that I was, I mean, really stood out.
0: Yeah, he's, he's pretty easy, <laughs> to, easy to hate early on. Um, you, you worked at with Nickelodeon. Um, what did you do there and what were your memories of this time period? I think you worked there, I think when it was in its formulative uh, period where it was beginning, correct?
1: Yeah, I, 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 I have had the great opportunity and sort of one of the things I really, really like is working at startups. That's one of the things I learned early on. And um, I actually went to Nickelodeon because one of the people who worked at spy was moving to Nickelodeon. I was like, Hey, Hey, can I, that would be awesome. I'd love to go work at Nickelodeon. And she's like, yeah, we're actually going to launch a magazine. And, um, I worked for her in the marketing department for a while. And then we moved and we started creating, um, Nickelodeon magazine. And I was one of the people who helped to launch it. And it was a terrific experience it was a terrific magazine and it breaks my heart that it died a couple of years back for all I know it was 10 years back I have no idea i sort of it's like grief you just don't really want to like put a finger on it but we were creating a humor magazine for kids all written by people who write for adults and that makes a really big difference sometimes um and it, you know I would go to like parties or something people like oh you work at Nickelodeon that's so cute I love I, I I'm thinking of a kid's book I think that must be so easy and fun writing for kids <laughs> I was like no actually um I, you know and my husband would sort of like tug me away from the person before I became violent so uh, um, <laughs> no no actually writing for kids is harder than writing for adults because you have to take an idea distill it down and make it simple enough and also kids don't get irony so like They don't develop the ability to have a sense of irony until they're 9, 10, 11 years old. In my family, you develop it around five, but that's just a survival thing.
0: No, I've had entertained children um, do puppet shows or read for them, and nothing is more devastating than the withering gaze of an unentertained child.
1: <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Um, but Nickelodeon itself was a really... Um was a great place because it, like you said, it was sort of in the beginning and it was one of the things um, in the early days of cable TV you had to do was at a place like Nickelodeon, we didn't have great television shows. Like we weren't, they weren't creating, they were creating like the shows about like Double Dare, but a lot of the other stuff was bought programming. So in order to create a cohesive network, you have to create all the interstitial programming around it to create the sort of feeling you know, the mood, the tone, the voice um, of the network. And that was what we did. I mean, Nickelodeon Magazine translated it from, you know, TV into print. And then I went to work in the on-air promotions department. And there we created all the interstitial bits that really created who Nickelodeon was. And then they busted out with all the sorts of great television. So that was um, made it easier to do the job then too.
0: I also, uh, when I was doing my research, um, I saw that you had written for Oxygen um, Television. Now, I remember Oxygen Television when it came out, and I was one of the people that watched it, even though I know I wasn't necessarily the target audience. I thought it was really brilliant, and it had really good writing. It's nice to meet Not, you,
1: the only thank viewer. Thank you. No. I'm just...
0: <laughs> no, and I was thinking, though, I really feel, though, with its programming that it... I, I, I know this is gonna sound like hyperbole, but I really think I'm right here. I, I really think it changed television, but maybe it doesn't get any credit for it. Did you have any sense that it made a lasting imprint on television?
1: I would love to know how you think that it changed television. I'm gonna throw the question right back to you. I'm sorry, interviewer meet interviewer.
0: I think that many of the programs that were on at the time, um, they were you know, largely written for women. And that mm-hmm. wasn't something that we had back then. And I think that people kind of mocked it or we're not like, uh, men were like, oh, this is for women, I can't watch this. But I was thinking, wow, this, some of this stuff is really brilliant and the writing is really good and I enjoyed watching it. And then I think that maybe many people who you know, were kind of planning television shows, uh, sitcoms, TV shows, um, dramas started picking up on that and started creating shows that were like that when they didn't really exist beforehand. People weren't really, I don't feel like we're writing anything that maybe was a uh, voice for women. Um, so I kind of think that was the the change that it made on television what do you think I,
1: I, I I'm so glad to hear that because that's exactly what the goal was right um, I was part of the um, marketing team for Oxygen because you know there comes a point in every writer's many writers lives in that especially at that point in time and now even more so where in order to be a writer who got paid for your work you also often had to work in marketing (laughs) and so one of the things i did was to help create the tone and the voice of the um marketing side of oxygen which also helped inform the whole network right um yeah but at the top of the network we had jerry laybourne oprah um the folks who had um produced uh murphy brown which i can't and also other brilliant shows that i can't put my finger on their name Um, uh, But that group of people really obviously have a very good idea about what women, what was lacking for women. And I think maybe the problem was, and we were reacting also to networks like Lifetime. And we were trying to be the anti-Lifetime, but still for women. And it, it makes me sad that I think that my feeling is Oxygen couldn't continue to exist as a women's network because it was almost like, it was there. even though the stuff was humorous, it's almost like people don't like having that earnestness of, oh, this is for women and it's for us right. in, in their faith. Um, and now it's the other kind of women's network. It's true crime.
0: Yeah. And my wife watches it quite a bit, actually.
1: <laughs> of course. <laughs> we all do. We're all obsessed by it.
0: Now, I saw in my research that you um, you have a chef's qualification from the Institute of Culinary Education. What was it like getting this qualification for you? And what was this uh, period like in this study?
1: Um, I decided to um, leave oxygen. I'd wanted to be trained as a chef. I've always wanted to write about food, right? When I was at Nickelodeon Magazine, I was like... I- Uh, let me do a piece on creating a slime cake, right? You know, my first foray into recipe development. And um, like I said, I always grew up talking and thinking about food. Um, So why not do something with this energy? Um, And I uh, decided that things were not going the way I wanted them to. I wanted to do writing that was much more focused on food and stuff. So I never went to the culinary institute of culinary ice I never went to ICE um, with the thought of, I'm going to go work in a restaurant kitchen because I'm not right. out of my mind, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And instead I was like, I want to learn to, I want to understand cooking so that I can then talk about it with knowledge. I mean, in the same way that like I studied, you know, history in graduate school so that I could have a sense of how one studies history so I could do it properly, Right. Right. Um, I loved it. It was fantastic. It was amazing. I mean, my God, Um, it, it gives you any sense of how much I liked it. Within weeks of going to, I mean, this is sort of personal information, but let it just be a lesson to everyone. Within weeks of going, I finally became pregnant. Oh, with my husband, gradually. I want to point it. It was not like I found somebody at the school. <laughs> I, I want to be really clear about that. Oh, ooh, that didn't sound right. But you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. my, bo- my body relaxed. I was in a happy place. <laughs> nice. You write about
0: food famously, and you have a set of stack where you share recipes with your readers. Can you talk about your love of food writing and some of the feedback that you've gotten from your readers over the years?
1: Um, I think the greatest feedback I get from people is when, or the most heartwarming feedback for me is when people make the recipe. And I think somebody wrote me about a recipe that had pumpkin in it back in November. And if you're out there, hi, I'm sorry, I don't remember (laughs) your name, but you probably don't want me to use it anyway. Um, It was like, (laughs) oh, you know, my husband hates pumpkin, but he approved this recipe. I'm like, yes. I've converted someone, that's fantastic. That's my religion. <laughs> if I can convert you to, um, my my point in all of this is to convert people to know not so much new flavors, but more that you can cook, that anybody can cook. That it's really just a question of being able to, to have a clear, clearly written recipe in front of you and have a little patience with yourself. and. I really want, I'm on a big, um, push to get people to, and I'm going to open the door now for my, to let my dog out.
0: Okay. Beautiful dog, by the way.
1: Thank you. He's a big fluffy. Mm-hmm. Um, and now he's chasing a squirrel and let's see if he'll catch <laughs> it. Shall we wait? Shall we wait? Ah, another day where he doesn't catch the squirrel. Oh, poor guy. I don't mean to make fun of him. He tries.
0: Good day for the squirrel
1: though. <laughs> Good day for the squirrel. The squirrel's like, yes, chalk another one up. <laughs> um, so I, I to get back to my sub stack I really would like to create recipes that um, encourage people to cook to let people know that you know there's a everybody says well I'm afraid of baking be-. many people say because I'm afraid of baking because if, if everyone tells me it's chemistry it's a science and I can't I can't stray from anything and I say well actually there are things you can do and you know I would keep basic proportions of flour and sugar and butter together but um and i don't think uh, my friend rose levy barrenbaum likes it when i say this but you can stray a little you can off-road it i'd prefer if you cook the recipe the first time the way it's written but then see what you can do your chemistry teacher is not in the kitchen with you and i had a nasty chemistry teacher so i just dispute all of that
0: now you mentioned uh, Rose Levy Beranbaum, and uh, she introduced us. I I, I want to ask you, outside of Rose, who are some of your favorite food writers?
1: Who isn't my favorite food writer? Um, I I like to go back in time a little bit when asked this question, mm-hmm. and say that um, Mrs. Knopf, Mildred Knopf, um, wrote some books in the 1950s. She was the sister-in-law of Alfred, of publishing fame, and oh, yeah, she wow. Wrote, yeah and she wrote books called cook my darling daughter cook um that's (laughs) one of them and they're the most relaxed wonderful um personal cookbooks it's not something you always feel like you get in in that time period you know they're not very they're just formal enough in that you understand the recipes but uh, and also the recipes sort of jive with my sense of like what would be delicious everything is a cream cheese pastry you know like there's always like cream cheese dough and you're always rolling jam into it right very hungarian sort of influence um she has a whole chapter on strawberries uh that I, I, people didn't do that then and so i, I yeah. just i love her tone and her recipes are still fantastic you know you look at some old cookbooks and you're like i'm not going to use four pounds of lard in there like they add. <laughs> I don't, a dozen eggs now would, you know, mean I had to like turn in both my kidneys. Right. So you don't want to cook like that. Um, and by turn them in, I mean, hand them in, in exchange for, yeah, because eggs cost so much, um, which is a joke from David Aaron, Dave Aaronberg, who I interviewed for my podcast this week. We talked about the, we talked about the price of eggs as one does.
0: Oh yeah. It's been murderous.
1: (laughs) Right. Um, I, I love those cookbooks. I can turn around and look at my shelf. You know, I was inspired early on by Nigel Slater's cookbooks, which are also um, beautiful cookbooks about basically cooking very simply. And I think a lot of those British authors who people like, oh, British food, ew, these people were doing things, we're, we're talking about food in its simplest, purest form and, and homiest form. Yeah. before we got there in the United States. And that's why I, I love Nigel Slater's books. Let me turn around a little bit. Um, I, I, I like all my cookbooks. Um, um, and sometimes I can tell you who I don't like because they're overwritten. Obviously I like uh, Molly Katzen. Um, I'm a big fan as many are of Ina Garten because she writes those same kind of simple anyone can do it recipes. Yeah, Um, And in my later life, I have become a super fan. I mean, I'm a super fan of Molly Katzen's anyway, but the Moosewood cookbooks still cook up first-rate recipes.
0: I I think she's very, um, nobody speaks enough about her. I really love her work and um, I'm a huge fan of hers.
1: Yeah. She's also like a really good person. Um, Yeah. One of the people who it's... um, whose Substack i really like and i mean she also happens to be a nice person who i know but i really like uh emily Rees nun's uh, uh sub about salad
0: oh which that's, that's like, a really good one yeah yeah yeah
1: it's great and her recipes are flawless and the photography is great but also just the she she's a brilliant writer obviously she wrote for the new yorker yeah. so she wrote for the Chicago Tribune so you know she kind of knows what she's doing but it's just a truly enjoyable read and in, and like inspiring and it's you know every week which is impressive
0: now you've written about um, cooking gadgets extensively in your career for Newsweek um, what was some of the fun most fun uh, things you uh, got to review and kind of find out about
1: uh, that was my favorite job anybody wants to give me that job again I will happily do it um, please call in, send in your uh, <laughs> your gadget. Um, I got to review all manner literally from like um, strawberry hulling tools and tools that you that allowed you because it was very popular at the time. Um, cupcakes allowed you to core out the center of a cupcake specifically, you know, um, extract it from the cupcake. And then you could fill it with cream and then put an icing on it. Um, adorable, but completely useless. That thing goes straight from your drawer to the like the garage sale within yeah. a matter of months. It's out there. It's almost faster than your bread machine, right? <laughs> yeah um, one uh, I got to review a like must have been what it like six, eight like, many, many thousands of dollars worth of coffee maker from Breville. They sent it to me. It ground coffee, it steamed coffee. It did everything I had to, I had to return it, which was a bummer, but you know, journalism it's fair, Uh, but what a magnificent experience, right? A few of the things that I reviewed, I am still absolutely in love with today. And the first is my Aeropress coffee maker? Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen one or used one. It's by the same man who um, invented the AeroB flying disc. He's an engineer from Stanford. And it's a very simple contraption. I can go over and get it if you want me to show you. This coffee that I'm drinking right now is made from it. Um, oh. it's a press, but it, um, it it's just it just does a beautiful cup. It does like in the same way that you use a French press but it can be very yeah. oily. This does it so quickly and um, by pushing air out of the way that um, it has no oil, right? There's oh, no nice. bitterness and there's none of that. And it really takes away the acidity that you get with a lot of coffee. Right. Um, so for me, it's a great thing, very sensitive stomach. Um, the other thing is I wrote a review an air fryer. And this was like, I don't know, just when they were like coming into the market, the earliest ones, like from Philips, they were very popular at the time in Asia, but not here. And I reviewed one and was like, eh, why would you want to put this on your counter? It makes the French fries look weird. It does a nice job with like shrimp wrapped in bacon, kind of crispy. Oh, it does a nice job with chicken nuggets. And I was like, but I don't see why you'd want this. I come before you, correct it. I was wrong. And I love my, I, I have the same one. My Phillips air fryer, she is my friend. Every day we get together, we do great things together and she's wonderful. From reheating great New Jersey pizza, let's go back to Jersey. From reheating great New Jersey pizza, it's brilliant at doing that. Putting it in the toaster oven, meh. the air fryer, you get crispy, you get that sort of intense heat that you want. Um, to roasted vegetables, to the falafel that I buy for and almost anything that you buy at Trader Joe's is made even yeah. better by your air fryer. And without having to think a whole lot, like I literally can, you know, bef- I, you know ha- before I go out and teach or whatever I have to do, throw some in, turn that thing, walk away. Ta da. It's a little magic and it's delicious. So, i stand corrected and i love it and everyone should have one everyone should have one over an instant pot there that's my um controversial statement of the day
0: i think the whole instant pot things kind of died down a little bit i think we go through these things where something's the best thing in the world and then it's like eh okay whatever Mm -hmm.
1: i i don't think i'm gonna get over that's what i feel like my instant pot is, is used can be used for so many different things i mean not my instant pot my air fryer but my instant yeah. pot was just really good at like smoothing food's flavors together. Yeah, It's just me.
0: I think Murphy. the uh, air fryer, we had to kind of get it. There was a learning curve. There's a learning curve with it. Cause I'm, I was going to toss mine out. And then I started using it to make uh Brussels sprouts and I started re- how, seeing how it could do different things. And I'm like, okay, I'll keep this.
1: How do you make your Brussels sprouts in the air fryer?
0: I toss them with some uh, smoked salt and olive oil. And then I roast them, and sometimes I put a little bit of pancetta in there.
1: Okay, I'll eat that. But wouldn't you eat? You'd eat that just as a meal, right there. Like you don't yeah. need to have much else. That's no. what I mean. It like I mean, creates enough of a flavor, like like diverse kinds of flavors that you're like, this is very satisfying.
0: Oh, and there's one version where we um, you know, just fry it with the um garlic oil, and then we toss it with a ch- sweet hot chili sauce. And it's amazing
1: totally the sweet hot chili sauce tossed with brussels sprouts is so good oh yeah
0: This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. <laughs> I want to talk about your podcast. Um, I've been listening to it lately, and I really am captivated by it because it's really a standout. And um, it's the Secret Life of Cookies. If um, our guests have not heard about it, um, they need to listen to it now because it defies type. And now you've had some guests on there like Rose Levy Berenbaum and Andrew Zimmern, which are you know um, cooking um, gurus. But then also you've had Political experts like General Mark Hurtling and Dahlia Lithwick. Tell us, this audience, can you please describe this podcast to our audience? Because it's very kind of singular.
1: Yeah. Uh, thank you. I'm, um, how would I describe the secret life of cookies? Very simply put, it is talking to the experts of the day in their field about what's going on in politics and the world and culture and the arts. Um, I've focused a lot on politics and the news because uh, it's, there's a lot going on and there's a lot to digest. And I never, I've had so much respect for lawyers in my life as I have doing this podcast. Um, I don't think any of us as Americans have had to understand the law quite as much as we've had to over the past number of years because of some of the hijinks going on in um, our government with Trump. And um, that's a you know very broad statement right there. Uh, so I've had people on from Mary Trump to Joyce Vance to uh, like you said, Mark Hurtling and I would sat down and we talked about um, the, Situation in Ukraine, and it, this was just at the uh, in December. So we were talking about like what it was going to be like for a winter, winter war. But then we also talked about food, and that's the how the show works. It's we talk about what's going on in the world while baking, and so either I'm baking because sometimes people are just way too busy to actually do it or we baked together. This past Friday, I, um, with a podcast that's coming out later this week, I baked with Dave Arenberg, who's the state attorney general or state attorney for Palm Beach County, the home of Jeffrey Epstein, Mar-a-Lago, Miss um, Cleo, if you saw the documentary. And he and I baked together while talking about these major issues that have been going on and also like trying to figure out who, like, which would be the indictment that was, wh- what was gonna be the first indictment against Trump? Which are the sure things and which are the, don't don't count on it. And we were making cakes for our dogs at the same time. <laughs> so I was mixing up a whole wheat carrot pumpkin number and he was mixing one from a box mix. Um, sometimes we bake together and sometimes we don't, but, Every time we do, I we do talk about food because I think it's, it creates. I mean, you. I mean, I'm sitting in my kitchen right now talking to you. How many yeah. great conversations do you have with like your guests? You always end up congregating in the kitchen. It sort of right. makes a more relaxed space for topics that really I think have been getting us all, many of us, very very um, anxious and concerned. And so I wanted to create an atmosphere where we could talk about these and sort of do a little occupational therapy with cooking.
0: What I like, I think most about the podcast is that it gives us a chance to see different facets of people. And when we watch things on TV, like say firing line or something we <laughs> will, they're just they are just talking about a topic. They're not talking about themselves or not they're not showing that you see one side of people. And I think mm-hmm. that like, it's like that with, uh, I think cooking authors too. You know, people that uh, read Rose Levy Beranbaum may not know that she also was going to be a ballet dancer at one point. Mm-hmm. She's highly intelligent. She's very well read. She's an amazing, funny person. And we don't always get to see those facets. Well, who's, I think, the guest that surprised you the most and kind of like opened up on your podcast?
1: Um, I would actually, I mean, you mentioned General Hurtling. And I have to say I was a little bit nervous before that interview because I thought, you know, I can read as much as I possibly can as, you know, as a journalist, you're sort of trained before you interview somebody, right? You do a lot of research beforehand and yeah. you try and have enough knowledge that you can evoke answers out of people. Um, but there's a point where, you know, I was not the, you know, NATO commander for North for Europe sort of thing for America, right? <laughs> United States for NATO, like General Hertling was, or um, I may be messing up his title. So. I, I might want to let you know what it really is. Um, but here we were having these really intense discussions about what's going to happen in Ukraine and what has been happening in Ukraine and what the possibilities of um, were are going to were going to be for Russian uh, attacks on Ukraine over the winter and how the Ukrainians would fare. And that's a very intense conversation,
0: yeah
1: um. And we also managed to talk about, and you know, I don't do it in a very, I don't, I'm not clunky about it, right? Like it could be really like, and now tell me what you like about cookies. You know, I, I, I try not to do that, obviously. That's one of the skills, yeah. but we did kind of wind down the conversation and we were talking about, um, I said to him something about chocolate chip cookies. Cause I, I'm working on a project about chocolate chip cookies and the whole demeanor of this general changed, absolutely changed because he started talking about his wife and how she makes the absolutely best chocolate chip cookies in the world and how they would just gone to visit their grandchildren and how she'd brought all the ingredients for chocolate chip cookies with her to the grandchildren because she wanted them to taste just like they should not have to mess around with any local ingredients that they had and how she'd made them and he didn't even get one of them. They'd eaten them all before he could. <laughs> you, you were looking at like this very serious general or retired general as a grandpa who loves eating cookies, right? And adores his wife. So you get these different perspectives of people that is it's just really nice. Um, and also sometimes you can see people who are incredible experts, maybe they aren't experts at baking. And so they show a little chink in their armor as well. And that's, that's a nice way to see people, especially if you've sat there for the past three years, glued to them in front of the television going, tell me everything, tell me everything. And then you realize, oh yeah, they go home and make dinner too. Stuff like that.
0: I found podcasting to be very transformative. I've really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to people and I find it's had a huge impact on my life. How has having this podcast affected your life and and how has it kind of changed your perception if it has?
1: Uh, um, I don't like when people make fun of podcasting, first of all, because I think podcasting is a number one, a great thing. There is that sort of feeling where it's like, oh, what are you going to do next? I think I'll have, a, you know, in the way actors, you're like, what do you want to do next? We're like, I'd like to direct. It's like, yeah. so what would you like to do next, writer? Have a podcast. <laughs> so it is sort of the butt of a joke. Um, I have, I love being able to be the educated, naive, if you know what I'm saying, um, and go into an interview situation with somebody and really get to ask all the questions that I think people at home, in quotes, um, are asking themselves. Those follow-on questions that you can't get because Mika Brzezinski on Morning Joe only has two minutes to talk to them. Right. Um, And we have the chance to go more in-depth with things that's really important to me. And I think um, it's something listeners want as well. You know, I'm always trying to be act as the, as the average listener. Um, and it's really made me respect also how much um, discomfort people have with cooking and um, how I wanna make it, I want people to, first of all, to be able to understand what's going on in the world better. And I want them to be able to cook um, with less fear. So those are two big things, but those are like the two biggest things that have been going on in, in the world. Like I want people to understand what's going on in the world. It's so important right now. I think we've been through a very, very tumultuous time. And if we don't understand more, we're gonna keep going through tumultuous times. Um and we really have to get a hold of as much information as we can. That's what I'm hoping to do. Also at the same time, let's chill a little bit, eat a cookie, you know, and draw down our fear of baking. And it's the two actually end up going together. We're just having a conversation over the kitchen island, you know? I've I've loved it and it's improved, hopefully. I, I feel, I hope other people do. Um, my skills as an interviewer, as a journalist. Um, and I'm really much better with eyeliner now because, you know, um, even though I do a podcast, I do like to wear a little makeup so I don't look really tired. And so I've gotten much better at that as well.
0: (laughs) I think my wife would approve of that.
1: The biggest skill, anybody who knows me is like, you wear makeup? Not really. Um, The biggest skill is the ability to talk (laughs) and bake at the same time, to be able to mix things, not forget ingredients, although I often do, and be able to have a somewhat intelligent conversation with people. Or at least make them look them. They can be intelligent while I'm mixing things up.
0: I love that. I love that. Uh, you know, it's funny you touched on something that I think people are. You know, everybody's gonna you know, got a podcast nowadays, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because I've listened to some podcasts that some actors have done, and I didn't know what to expect going in. And I'm like, wow, these this is really brilliant. Like, uh, and they could be you know as funny like smartless or. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they can be insightful, like the Mark Marin podcast. And I really have been so happy with some of the stuff I've listened to. What are some of your favorite podcasts that you listen to?
1: Um, I like Smart List. I like Mark yeah. Marin um, uh, very much so. I, I had a really interesting experience, though, with my students, where I read my students. I, I teach intro to journalism and um, some other like seminar level courses on writing. Uh, at Montclair State, my um, close, my the university in my town, um, and the I I read the students an essay of Mark Maron's uh, from the New York Times about buying a pair the perfect looking for the perfect pair of pants. It was so interesting. I like because we went through it paragraph by paragraph, and I said. So what do you think of this guy after the first two paragraphs? Like, it sounds like he's a middle-aged guy having a midlife crisis. I was sort of like, oh, what kind of point on there? Okay. Yeah. And then he, gave a, he wrote a paragraph about the guy selling him pants had a tremendous handlebar mustache. And he went off for about a paragraph about this guy's only identity really being a handlebar mustache. And that's all he had. And to me, I thought this was hilarious. And my students 201 were like, cause he just captured it perfectly. And my students 201 were like, that's so judgmental. Why would he talk that way? I would never just sum somebody up by the, the fact that they were just a handlebar mustache. I, I was like, well, wouldn't you notice it? And they were like, no, I wouldn't know. I mean, I'd notice it, but I wouldn't like make it the focus of my conversation about the guy. I was like, oh, we are such bad people, I'm sorry. Um, So it's important to stay in touch with, um, younger people so that, you know, uh, how people, (laughs) it's just people, kids are changing the way they think about things and the way it's very different to the way we think about things. Um, those are two of my favorite podcasts. I'm a big fan of the maintenance phase podcast, which takes apart, um, dieting myths, Oh, two great hosts, um, let me pause for a second. What are the other ones I listen to? I've been really getting into like there's of uh, ones that um anything that kind of breaks down. Um, cults or conspiracy theories. And really oh, yeah. goes into yeah, yeah. deep me too. dives on those. I'm like, I'm for it. Let's break this down. Let's like show it for what it is. I've been doing a lot of, um, uh, I, I spent like a lot of the past couple of weeks doing a deep dive on her name is oh, what's her name? Uh, is she um, like this is obviously something you need to edit out. But yeah, it's, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it's what's her name? She um, is all about a recovered memory, and she wants everyone to embrace the concept of suicide. And her name is like Swan Vesta. Teal Swan. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So let me just say that again. So over the past couple of weeks, I have been going deep on the topic of Teal Swan, who uh, is a, some might call her a cult leader. Some might call her a religious figure. Some might call her someone who has brought a lot of hope to people. Um, I'm not going to express my opinion here, but fascinating to go deep on her that's all i'm going to say
0: did you uh, hear mark's um interview with courtney love
1: no i haven't
0: yeah it's uh it's something to behold might want to check okay. that out
1: <laughs> <laughs> well the person who benefits the most the, the the it's not a person it's my dog that benefits the most from podcast recommendations because the more interesting the more enticing the podcast, the more likely I am to stay out walking my dog longer and longer so I can heal the entire podcast in one go.
0: Oh, yeah, they're great for that. I love them (laughs) on drives. And yeah, walking is really good. It's a good one.
1: So I look forward to my dog looks forward to me listening to Courtney Love. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, you're going to enjoy that one. Um, So, Marissa, my last question is, what is next for you?
1: Um. I'm gonna uh, finish my cup of coffee, and then I'm gonna change into grown-up clothes, and I'm going to go teach my intro to journalism class. And we're gonna talk nice. about we're gonna talk about the lead in, in in traditional newspaper writing. And talking about traditional newspaper writing with twenty-year-olds is interesting because they're not really accustomed to traditional newspaper writing, let alone a newspaper in paper form. So uh, you know, I've had a number of students when I'm like, tell me what news sources you're gonna follow so that you can be up to date on the news. I had a student tell me they were gonna follow the Onion. And I appreciate that because the Onion is its own sort of view on the news, but not yeah. a news source. And um, the Daily Mail, also very popular. No, not a news source. Um, so there's that sort of explain has to go on. W- what else I'm gonna do? Um, every week I'm working on new recipes for my pod for my sub stack and my podcast, but I'm actually working on, and this is also like, so oh, actor, what do you want to do next? I want to direct. So food writer, what do you want to do next? Um, I'm working on a cookbook proposal.
0: Excellent. Good to hear. I was <laughs> hoping about that.
1: <laughs> so that is very briefly, I mean, very uh, Sorry, that was a very long answer to say, yeah, I'm working on a cookbook proposal. And that comes with its host of old challenges that someday when you have more time, we can talk about with the publishing industry, the challenging place to
0: see. I would like that. I like to have it back to talk about that. I, I talk about that with my guests a lot. And it's, a, I think, one of our most popular topics.
1: Do you have any, Do they have any like thoughts or insights? I mean, is there a way to, because there are all these like, new sort of like hurdles that you have to jump. Oh, how many people do you follow you on Twitter? How many people follow your podcast? How many people do this? And I don't know if that is the best way to find the best cookbooks.
0: Yeah, and then I, I yeah, I think th- there's like a lot of challenges to kind of marketing and getting your cookbook out there. And I think people think that like a, a library is just gonna pick it up, a bookstore is just gonna pick it up and that's not the case. And it's very finicky and tricky. And I, I see that from people. I, I have an article I've written about how to get your book in a library. And I don't think a lot of people realize it just doesn't happen automatically. It's it's a process.
1: Um, I'd love to talk about libraries at some point as well, too. Maybe. Yeah, have let's you, have you back I, on. I'd love it because I go to my library a lot and I feel it's a bit of a ghostly place. It's a place with a lot of ghosts, I mean. Um, yeah. it's It's my favorite place to be is Good. the public library. And I want to know how I make it, people who are younger than mine, me, how I make it their favorite place.
0: Well, that's my everyday challenge. And that's a big challenge. Yeah, we could have a whole discussion on that one. I'd love to do that.
1: <laughs> I'd love to do it as well.
0: Marissa, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. I'm going to have links to your Substack and your podcast in the bio. Thank you for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. It's lovely to talk with you. I've been.
0: That was my conversation with writer, podcaster, Marissa Rothkoff Bates. We have links to her podcast, The Secret Life of Cookies, as well as her Substack in the bio. On Friday, we're going to be talking to the Great American Bake Off winner, Tina Zaccardi, also over the website Tina Zaccardi Bakes. She's going to be on on Friday, and I had a lovely time talking to her as well. So please check that out. Until then, I hope you're having a great week. Maybe you've cooked something from one of the guests I've had on the show. Um, we hope that you're having a really great week, and keep on cooking. <music>